Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Fergo and the Freak. I'm that bloke from Rugby League Project, Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter at AndrewRLP. And joining me is League Freak, who you can find on Twitter at League Freak. How you doing there, mate? Pretty good. I'm really looking forward to this episode. Um, it's another great guest that we've got coming on and this will be fantastic. Yep. Today we have Brian Cini, the man behind the NRL Physio account on Twitter. How you going there, mate? Yeah, good boys. Uh, really, really excited. Good. Looking forward to discussing some um, some injury topics. Excellent. So, what got you going with the NRL physio account? Like, um, obviously, sitting back watching the game, and there were things that you would see happen, and and you, you obviously have a knowledge base for that. Um, is that how it started? Because it's it's absolutely exploded. It's been fantastic. Yeah, look, it was one of those ones. I like. I still, you know, I started as a hobby, and I still see it as a as a bit of a hobby. Like, I've got a uh, you know a full time job, and uh, I'm a uh, partner out at my uh, private practice. So, look, I love my footy. Um, always have, and watch as you say. It's just watching the games, and and you see certain things that you know. If like I've got obviously a few physio mates, and you'd see an injury, and you'd message them and go, oh yeah, did you see. You know, on the TV, they'd be going, oh, did you see, you know, oh, whoever, Greg Inglis did his knee, whereas I'd be messaging my mate saying, oh, how about that ACL that, you know, Greg <laughs> did? And, you know, just throwing out, you know, things like that very informally. And then um, it actually all started. I got invited to an NFL fantasy league. It would have been oh, probably three or four years ago. And I, I knew nothing about the NFL. So when... Uh, league mates said go to go to twitter that's where you'll get like all your information you know and it'll allow you to be competitive in the league and and i sort of joined it and saw that over in america like this this information has value you know a lot of people mm-hmm. um like you know those explanations of, of injuries and recoveries and rehab and stuff like that and i just thought oh wow well that doesn't exist at all particularly in the nrl but you know like also in the australian sporting landscape so I just created, you know, I thought, okay, um, I like I like the NRL and I'm a physio, so I just called myself NRL physio, not expecting much to come of it. And, um, yeah, it's just gone from strength to strength, really. And it's just all stuff, you know, like um, people always, you know, will often ask me, oh, how do you, you know, how do you have time to do this? And how do you, and, and really it's just all stuff that is is automatic knowledge. You know, we, we this is stuff that we as physios deal with on a on a day to day basis. So it's um it's not something I have to put a whole lot of time into because it mm-hmm. all is um it's stuff that just comes yeah naturally. Have you found that there's been um certain injuries which have been happening on a more regular occurrence in the game today compared to say you know in the past you know. If, if, yeah, for sure. Like, I think it particularly, look, like, I've been a physio for well, eight or nine years now. And, like, so I probably wasn't keeping track of injuries sort of, you know, when I was a teenager. Um, yeah. But, uh, like, like looking at the sort of historical, you know, how the injuries have progressed, things like, you know, your pec injuries are one that get talked about quite a bit. Um, your ACL seem to be happening a little bit more often. Um, things like your syndesmosis injury, that like I think that's happening slightly more often. But uh, like things with the syndesmosis injury, it seems like it's happening more often because the word syndesmosis has only been used for it seems like the last five or six years in, in exactly, the NRL. Before, yeah. <laughs> before that, it was just an ankle sprain. You know, he's rolled yeah. his ankle and, and that's it. And and even with your ACLs, you know, like if you go back 30, 30 years, it might have just been torn knee ligaments or something mm-hmm. like that. So. I definitely think the pec is one that has increased um, and the ACL as well, probably 
a little bit more common these days if you're going back sort of 20 or 30 years. Um, and then, look, like across the league, obviously, as, you know, as, as performance increases, as players get bigger, faster, stronger, that increases the forces. So, you know, you get little little increases in, you know, fractures and stuff like that because, obviously, the uh, the impacts are, are a bit more traumatic. Do, do the NRL clubs these days, do they look at how hard they train the players, how many hours they put in for training, um, how many games they play, how many minutes they play and things like that in an effort to try and cut back on, on uh, repetitive use injuries? Oh, absolutely. And that's like you, you've pretty much named all the things that they they monitor everything the players do these days. And I think training can like, you know, people like this overtraining can get a bit of a bad rap sometimes because people say, oh, the players are overtrained. That's why they're getting these injuries. But like the, the clubs, they, they have that sports science behind them that they train like they do because they want to increase their performance. So they want to get bigger. They want to get faster. They want to be able to change direction at a quicker rate. So they're increasing performance. Now, if you increase performance, as I said before, that increases, you know, the speed that's going, it increases the impacts, all that kind of stuff. So there is an increase, you know, risk of injury through those mechanisms, but because they are well-trained, even though they do suffer injuries and what seems like more injuries, the number of injuries, that that training prevents them from suffering like if they Mm -hmm. didn't have that training behind them and it's a bit the same with the warm-ups too i mean players they seem to go through this massive long warm-up these days and people are like why do they warm up and a player might pull out you know late in the warm-up and people go why are they warming up for so long i can guarantee if the players didn't warm up as long as they do and went out and tried to perform like to their potential, the number of injuries would just increase astronomically because they're not warmed up enough. Um, and that, that's probably the big difference the, you know, that sports science has brought, is that it, it, it does improve that performance. Um, but it also, even though there are, it seems to be that there's that increase in injuries, I'd hate to think what the injury rate would be if the guys were trying to, you know, say there was one team that followed sports science and all the rest just went back to the old days. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that one team would just be performing at such a high level. Um, the injury rate would probably increase for all the other guys, I'd say. That's true. Um, I was going to ask a question, well, I will, um, about the, the difference in time it takes to recover from injuries today compared to in mm. the past. Yeah, and definitely. I, I'm reminded of a story about Pat Walsh back in 1909-10, um, and he was he suffered a knee injury while playing over in um, England. Yeah, and right. he had to go to uh, Liverpool to have the cartilage removed from his knee, and he ended up missing nearly 12 full months before he came back onto the field where he lasted about 45 minutes and then had the <laughs> had his knee collapse and he had to go and spend go and get another operation done on it again. Um, so I was thinking, obviously, cartilage removal, of the knee, I dare say, would not be a common thing. But if someone had to have that happen today, what would their recovery time be now, just, you know, as, as a bit of a rough gauge compared yeah. to the 12 months it took Pat Walsh to recover from? Well, that's right. I mean, when you when you said you were going to compare it to past, I thought we might be going back, you know, the sixties or seventies. But uh, to go back to nineteen oh nine, we're really uh, we're really travelling back in time. But look, like it, it's actually funny because cartilage removal, like it, it's like that's more commonly known these days as a meniscus injury. So, like some of the meniscus trims, and it just shows you the the, the improvements in in medical science that we've had, particularly if we go over the last hundred years. But 
uh, players are coming back after four to six weeks from a minor meniscus removal. And and so, you know, they just go in arthroscopically. So they, I imagine back in 1909, they probably had to open them right up, you know, to get in there to try and, you know, remove whatever they needed to remove. Whereas these days, it's, you know, a couple of little keyholes. Um, they shave away, you know, the torn, you know, piece of meniscus or cartilage. Um, and then, yeah, players are usually back, you know, four to six weeks, even the most severe cartilage you know injuries where they do have to sort of stitch something up or something like that look maybe three to three to four months would be max that players would miss these days um so yeah there's certainly i mean as i said especially if you compare it over the last hundred years the the advancements have been um yeah really significant phenomenal there's a similar thing with and it it Look, it's something that I feel like I've been noticing is the recovery rates from just broken bones, things like broken legs, broken arms and stuff. I feel like over the last 10 years, the recovery rates either seem to be quicker or, or the, you know, it's just, I, I, it just feels like players are coming back quicker from broken bones. And the other thing is that they're not re-breaking those bones again. Is there something that's happened in, in sports science that has helped that sort of thing? Yeah, look, I think surgical advancements are the big ones there. Like, there's there's so many different surgical techniques that, you know, players can undergo these days for different fractures. And that just, you know, stabilises, you know, whether it insert a pin or a plate or a rod or anything like that. That stabilises the fracture nice and early. It helps with the early healing and stuff like that. So, you know, you've got your, you know, your sort of increases there. And then, once again, it's the, it's the improvements in, in, in re have so we've got a greater understanding of you know okay what do we need to do to load that bone back up when is it safe to start loading it we've got Mm -hmm. the 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 access to scans now which you know allows us to rescan and go how's the structural integrity of that bone is it ready to go are we are we not okay with it we do we need to sort of load up the muscles around it a little bit more to help sort of protect it and stuff like that so it's just every every five or ten years that passes, like there's, you know, new surgical techniques that are coming out. Um, you know, Aaron Woods, for example, just recently he uh, fractured his uh, base of his fifth toe. The surgical technique that they use there, it only just started getting used. I think the first one in the NRL was in 2008. Um, Joey Leilua, they just put a screw sort of right along the, the length of the bone. Now, before that, it was an injury because it's a bone that has really poor blood supply and it's obviously in your foot so you use it quite a lot you're looking at you know six ten twelve months sometimes out of the game if you suffered a fracture of that bone woodsy's looking at missing 10 weeks you know Mm. um, because of this new surgical technique that they've found so that there's there's so many advancements that just allow the players, you know, to come back quicker and quicker and quicker um, which is you know which is really really good for for the game yeah I've I've watched you on um, Vossi's The Fan, mm. um, and I think he said on there a few times that with the, the increase in pec injuries um, could be linked to the players wearing these ridiculously tight football jumpers. Mm. Um, is, is that something that's, um, you know, the, the attire that the players wear, is that something that, that can actually lead to a lot of injuries like that? And would that also be linked to, um, I suppose, boots being tighter, I guess, having an increase in... Injuries on ankles and stuff. I don't know. Just sort of yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. 
Yeah, so look, like I'm going to call, and I do call this one the Vossi theory, um, the peck, <laughs> the peck injury one, because uh, look, it's not one that's been specifically studied, um, and Vossi kind of he's very, very you know firm on his belief, and uh, you know looking into it that when. In the old days with the with the looser jerseys, we used to see a lot of hand and wrist injuries, even elbow yes. injuries, because you, your hand would get caught in that loose jersey. Um, so that would, you know, cause different injuries in, in those regions. So I sort of, you know, sort of said to Vossi, look, there could be some merit into it because, you know, if you're not getting those, those increased forces through the hands and the elbow, then it passes it up to the next you know, next biggest spot, and that's shoulder and peck and stuff like that. I do think the pecs sort of more, definitely more come down to the players getting, you know, bigger, faster, stronger, particularly in through the chest and the shoulders. Um, you know, they're like the, the where the pec usually tears is, is through the tendon or where the tendon attaches into the muscle at the front of the shoulder there. And, and so you've got these growing muscles, these growing forces, but the tendon tends to stay approximately the same size. The tendon can't sort of grow quite as much as, as the muscle can. So that, you know, the increased forces through that area, just and especially with how explosive the game is, like most pec injuries are those explosive injuries. But yeah, look, mentioning the boots, he actually hit the nail right on the head. So a big, part and we talk I talked before about the improved performance so lighter and what I call a scientific word here but grippier boots so boots that are lighter they allow the player to run faster change direction quicker you know jump higher all that kind of stuff it's really good for performance so you know players are able to you know get down a short side that they wouldn't have been able to before and and step guys that they wouldn't have been able to before with the old boots because they're lighter they're quicker all that kind of stuff but with lightness, you know, lighter boots, there's a bit less support. And then the biggest thing is if you've got grippier boots and you're changing direction sharper and faster, which what we call the ground reaction force is a lot greater. So uh, there's actually quite a few studies done by Dr. John Orchard, who's a, an ex, uh, he used to work for the Sydney Roosters, looking at the effect of grip and the amount of grip the surface between the surface and the boot has on lower limb injuries. And it's actually the, the, the better that grip is, the higher risk areas of injury, particularly like your ACLs and stuff like that. So they actually find over in the NFL, there's a lot of ACL ankle injuries and stuff on artificial turf because the artificial turf actually is really, really grippy. So it just creates a big ground reaction force between the ground and the boot and the player. And if the foot gets stuck and the body keeps moving in one direction, that's how you get a lot of those, you know, ACL ligament, ankle, ankle ligament injuries. So yeah, there's, there's certainly some, um, yeah, some credence in the, in the thought that, you know, those improvements in, um, in, uh, in sort of, I guess the jerseys and the boots and stuff like that for the player's performance, um, can sometimes put them at a higher risk of injury. But I mean, if you said to a player, Hey, look, you're at a, five to ten percent increased risk of acl injury in those boots you want to put on these old heavy boots that aren't very grippy and you know you're not going to be able to run as fast the player's going to choose the improved performance every time and and roll the dice i would more than likely say yeah so is there an injury that you would consider to be a tip like the typical rugby league injury like something that maybe nearly every player has to deal with at one point in their career 
Oh, it's hamstrings. Yeah, <laughs> hamstrings <laughs> for sure. And I mean, we've seen a bucket load of them this year. But and 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 hamstrings aren't necessarily I'm probably cheating a little bit there in terms of a rugby league injury. But certainly any any sport that involves you know explosive running and stuff like that, like they see it a lot in AFL, they see it a lot in soccer, they see it a lot in the NFL. So any of those kind of running contact, you know, and, and even with a bit of endurance, like you've got your endurance factor, then you've also got your explosive factor too so you know a player might be tired fatigued because they've had a big game to the 70th minute and then all of a sudden they've got a sprint because there's a big break and you know that's that's when you're gonna be at an increased risk of those hamstring injuries and and they're the most common um, soft tissue injury that we see in the NRL um, and then, as um, has been well documented, the the risk of recurrence is really quite high too. So, um, I think so. I saw someone. I think it was Michael Jennings the other day described it as the the mosquito bite injury, and in that the mosquito just hovers around and never seems to go away. And yeah, they, they they look definitely the hamstring injury is one that you know if you can avoid that throughout your career, you you've done pretty well. Um, I have one which is um, sort of going back to the uh, equipment type of things. There's one mm. question that I'd always had, and I'm, I'm not sure if this is in your area or not, so just, yeah, just oh, look, blind, blind me if it's no good. Okay. Yeah. Um, does headgear actually provide protection? Because I've had so some, they, yeah, I've played with some players, and, yeah, I've played with some players, and they've worn it because they said it makes them feel like it does, but they're not too sure it does because they said they still get hit in the head and it still feels the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So look, look. Uh, like this is a big, a big. Like uh, I think it's a pro- bit of a problem um, because there is that understanding, and particularly amongst parents too. They sort of think that oh, I'll put my child in a headgear and that'll protect them from concussions. Um, look, with the look, technology is improving, and there's nothing to say that we can't down the track come up with something that does help. But as it stands right now, the evidence is overwhelming that all headgear protects you from is head lacerations, so cuts, and um, the old cauliflower ears. So, you know, the, the burst blood vessels and the ears sort of blowing up, which is, I think, a big reason why JT sort of wore them with his his big ears. But, um, yeah, look, the, 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 the way a concussion occurs is, is the brain shifting inside the skull, okay? So the brain sort of shifts and contacts either the front or the back or the side so it's it's that shifting and the headgear unfortunately it does nothing to to protect your brain from that shift so they're actually there was some studies come out recently where they actually find that wearers of headgear actually increased the likelihood of suffering concussions because they went into the game with the belief that I am protected because I've got this headgear on. So they participated in what we call more risky, risky behavior, right? Because they went into tackles quicker. They, they treated their head with more, I guess, disregard because they're like, well, I've got my headgear on, so I'm going to be sweet. Like that's protecting me. Um, and the, yeah, the, 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 the evidence, as I said, look, like I, I had a bit of a bit of an issue. I don't have too many issues on Twitter, but I certainly, I tweeted about this a couple of months ago and there was quite a few coming 
come out of the woodworks telling me how can padding not, uh, you know, help it. It's simple science. And I, you know, I tried to explain it as best I could, sending through, you know, scientific articles and stuff like that. But uh, I think that was a bit too too much information for the people I was, uh, I was dealing with. Well, essentially um, what you're trying to say is the only way you can stop that sort of injury from happening is if you put the padding inside the skull around the brain. It's, it's exactly right. Look, <laughs> the, big, the big thing is, is as they, they said, you know, simple science. And I said, well, the science says that, unfortunately, it just doesn't. Like, I've got science right here that says that it doesn't. So, um, yeah, look, like you even think about helmets, right? Like helmets in the NFL that, like, you know, they all wear them. But the, the evidence for helmets at the moment isn't great either. Like, that, they don't seem to prevent concussions as well. So it is something that, obviously, with the way, you know, the, the game is going with trying to prevent those head injuries, there's a lot of research into trying to find something that can help prevent that um you know and is there some sort of equipment they can we that we can find but yeah as we stand here today at the moment and unfortunately they they don't um seem to prevent or or help prevent concussions it would almost seem like it'd be one of those things that's almost impossible to prevent happening you can probably minimize it but because it's a contact sport and not just you know in a tackle but also with the ground the only way that, you could would be able to prevent it was if we just played touch footy, and that's that's exactly right. Like, like I think the biggest thing is that that like if we play, if we continue to play contact sports, unfortunately there is going to be a risk of concussion. And what it is, and, and look, it, it's about trying to minimise them happening. So as you said, things like the ground and stuff like that are obviously going to you know, increase. So, so that's why the NRL has brought in, you know, okay, no spear tackles, you know, number one, both for concussion and for neck injuries. Okay. We're going to outlaw head high tackles. There's another one. Um, a really controversial one is getting rid of the shoulder charge. Um, you yep. know, that was one as well to, to decrease and, and look, we're not getting rid of concussions completely, but these are all tackle types that are shown to increase the risk of concussion. So, okay, let's get them out of the game. Um, we're still able to, you know, have a game, that people can watch and there's still some contact and there's going to be instances where concussions occur and then so then the challenge becomes okay how do we minimize the effects that these concussions have on players so that's why the HIA is brought in you know then the concussion protocol all that kind of stuff so it's all like while there's contact sports you there look like in 100 years I might be proven wrong but there is just no way you can prevent these these concussions from happening completely but these two priorities are, A, to try and reduce the number of them occurring through, you know, rule changes and stuff like that. And I think in, I think it was under 19s rugby over in, um, in, in the UK, they actually trialled recently no tackles above nipple height, which was, uh, which was quite interesting. <laughs> Once again, like we sort of had a joke in amongst the medical community. I'm like, what do you, you cut two holes out in the jersey to see where the nipple height is? You know, like, what if you have sensitive nipples though? Like, man, what about those players? But, so, um, so yeah. are we saying that on the nipple would be bad or is, is that no, like well, the one? Like, no, well, they were trying to say, if you go, they wanted to keep people away from above the nipple to try and once okay. again reduce concussion risk. But I think that it just made the game. There were penalties galore. You know, it was just a penalty a thon, and it just wasn't, I guess, feasible. But yeah, the, the, that first challenge is yet to reduce it through, you know, rule changes and whatnot. And, the, and then the other thing is to reduce, you know, the effects that that concussion has to try and minimize the effects that that has on players. So you want the uh, the 
nipple height rule would have had a devastating effect on the women's game, just saying. So, <laughs> um, the one thing I wanted to ask you about was it must be frustrating when you see people talking about um, concussion rates in other sports, such as the NFL, which is has very, very different game dynamics to a rugby league match. Even rugby union, there's there's quite a few differences between the situation players get in in a rugby union match compared to a rugby league match, um, especially when you, you're hearing it from people that are talking from authority and you know that they've only seen the game on TV for, you know, while they've been sitting at home dressed up as a pirate. That must be very annoying when you see people talking in authority from that point of view when they're not looking at the studies from the NRL itself about actual rugby league matches. Yeah, and that's look, it's a very, very good point. I think like I think it happens too much a lot of the time. Like there seems to be a lot of people who um, you know, make assumptions and, and make conclusions based off, you know, one singular study that they've read or they've read one article that says this or or they've watched one as you say, they've watched one game of the NRL where this one incident happened and and then sweeping generalizations of, you know, this and that and and it happens in a lot of sports, but you know, obviously I've got a bit to do with you you know, rugby league, so you see it a bit there as well and I think the biggest thing is is that you, you like like I I'm probably a little bit biased in these situations but you have to you have to go back to the science and and the science isn't one study it's not one game it's it's it, you need more sample size than that you need to look at it as a whole and I think the NRL is well documented that they're you know they look like you know the big thing with concussions is they it, it's just we know lot a lot less than we are we need to learn so in other words there's a lot more about concussions that we still need to learn than we already know it's such an unknown thing so all you can do as as a sporting body is try and keep up with the current science so what we know right now um you know what what do what does the science show what do the studies show and i think the nrl is really really good at that you know like they copped a lot of flack like around and, and look as a spectator I certainly, you know, to lose the shoulder charge was like, oh, damn, like, you know, you're going to lose those Mm. big hits. And that was such a, you know, such a big controversial decision that the NRL made. But in terms of player safety and in terms of, you know, decreasing concussion risk, that was massive because those hits, like not only the direct contact, but the whiplash as well, because whiplash is a, a known mechanism for concussion. You know, they like they, they made a controversial decision there, but they did it because they're like, look, the, this is this is what we found. We found that the science and the studies and and all the information that we have, we, we want to remove that from the game for the the interest of player safety. So, you know, it's 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 really hard when you do see you know sweeping generalized statements and stuff like that. You want to you like I, I tend to tell people, you, you want to try and listen to people who who sort of kind of have that scientific, you know, research background, who have looked into, you know, like right across the board and gone, okay, this is these are the conclusions that we're coming to with the information that's available to us, not just oh this one study said this or this one game this happened so ban everything, you know, or, or whatever, um, which seems to, you know, in the in the outrage media that we have these days, that seems to be um, quite prevalent. But, yeah, I, I think um, sitting back and sort of taking in all the information is something that's really, really important. Uh, one thing I was 
going to ask, I think I may even ask you this on Twitter, is how important is it to get a, a physio or a trainer to apply injured on the field um, as quickly as possible? Because we had the NRL bring in these rules at the start of the year to try and help um, players get treated on the ground quicker and to communicate with the refs a bit in a, in a more organised fashion. But then we had the whole issue over Nene McDonald's injury where play went on for a while there. And um, just wondering, like, how important it is for the play to stop so Nene could have been treated sooner and the risks I guess he may have had if he had been left lying there for a bit longer without the game stopping. Yeah, so, look, you, uh, you've, you've hit a, a topic of contention for me here because <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a big one that I get pretty fired up about. So I'll, I'll try not to cough on too much. No, nah, fire up, mate. Go for it if you want. <laughs> Go um, crazy. Look, <laughs> and, Just and, attack and, everyone and make yeah. headlines. <laughs> yeah, look, like, I'm a massive, massive player safety, right? Like, I, like, and I might be biased, and I probably am, and I know the general rugby league community. I know there's players out there who have laid down to try and, you know, slow the play down, and, and then all of a sudden they get up and they're fine and stuff like that. But... It really, like this new rule, I kind of, I'm not the biggest fan. I think there is a, there's got to be a balance, right? You can't have players lying down and stopping the game every time. It just can't happen because there are players we know who who are tactically trying to do that. But there are, there are circumstances where, look, the, the when the trainer runs out onto the field or the physio, whoever it is, I, I truly believe that their number one and, and pretty much only priority at that circumstance has to be the player and the player's health and the player's safety. So to have, and especially if it's a significant injury, to have the trainer then sort of have to go, okay, I've got to assess him and I've got to do it quickly because the play's still going and, and the player might have to get back and, and stuff like that. It, it becomes a real sort of minefield and, and, and it is one of those situations where we are so careful when it comes to the head injuries and stuff these days. But the, the other thing is, is okay, say, for example, Nene McDonald, like obviously his was really severe, but like, like say someone goes down with a knee injury and the, and the trainer gets out there, it's the, you know, the 70th minute of the grand final and they're like, the trainer wants to assess his knee because he could have blown out his ACL or something like that. But the players kind of like, oh, my God, we're defending on our line. Like, oh, I've got to get back there because the, the, the play hasn't stopped. Now, if that guy's blown out his ACL, the, the, you know, the trainer hasn't been able to do a, a proper assessment. He could go and then dislocate his knee because he doesn't have you know, his ACL protecting him, which can cause permanent long-term damage. I know I'm talking extremes here. you got to. But I, look, yeah, I, I, I sit on the side of if we're going to err on the side of time wasting or player safety being our priority i would rather me personally i would much rather err on the side of player safety than time wasting i can deal with uh, stopping the game one or two times too many for a player who's okay um than not stopping the game for a player who's not okay and and having something you know catastrophic you know occur I fully agree, mate. I actually said on a, a podcast a few weeks ago that um, I think what needs to happen is instead of this silly system where the um, trainer has to contact the, the touch judge official, he's probably gone way downfield, as happened with the Nana McDonald That's issue. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, why don't they have the trainer automatically mic'd up directly to the ref or the bunker yep. so they say, mm-hmm. you need to stop it, he's not good, and that, that way everything just stops immediately on the spot. Why have this 
as, as Lee Freak mentioned, it's like Chinese whispers thing going on yeah. where you're trying to do a bloke with a busted ankle. Yeah. Love that idea. I think it's like that's perfect because then like this whole thing, and I do believe there's some credence, you know, like if, if the trainer sort of stops the play and then the player gets up because they had a cramp or something, then absolutely, you know, that whether it be the player or the trainer or whatever should be, you know, look like there, there can be some punishment there because, look, they've stopped the game in knowing it was a cramp. But if that trainer, like, you know, suspects that there's a serious injury, like the game, like, and, and the big thing is it's not just for player welfare too, but there's so many parts of the game where we reduce luck or bad luck. Look, bad luck is part of the game, but we try and reduce bad luck. That's, you know, a reason that we introduce the video ref because we're like, look, sometimes the referees are just sort of going off their gut feel and they're going, oh, look, I didn't see anything, but I think that's a try or whatever. We introduce the bunker or the video ref so that we can go, okay, if that by bad luck that team didn't, you know, they didn't score, then we've got to correct that decision. And I kind of, like, especially with the Nene you know, and and, and Asiata thing, I don't know how I sort of feel even as a fan. I know it's bad luck, but I'm like, they're two players down in the defensive line. If the other team scores, I'm kind of like, that's. I feel like that's rough. I feel like that's really rough to have two players who've suffered serious injuries. And once again, if the, and it's an extreme example, but if the scores are tied up in a grand final and and someone scores on an 11-man team because there's two players down with serious injuries, I'm kind of like, like that, feels hollow to me as a as a fan i'm like i i i think that we should be striving to sort of have you know the best 13 best versus the best 13 all the time so even from a game perspective like taking player welfare out of it i think it's a little bit you know it's a little bit dodgy to sort of you know want to play on in those like you know serious injury circumstances so i think it's certainly there's there's a balance we can't have players you know going down but I, I think I think your idea is great I think having having that direct communication and being able to be like look I've had a good assessment here I think there's a real issue I need to get this player off the field you know so I can assess him properly because you can't do a proper assessment out on the no. field like or a thorough assessment okay I need to get this guy off guys stop the game boom it's done you know it's good to go I think that's a great idea um, I've got a question about when, because we've talked about it before, um, when a player, say, dislocates their shoulder and fans will be at the game and they'll be like, oh, that's terrible and stuff. And they, you know, the next day they're not thinking about it while that player might not have slept since he dislocated oh, his shoulder. Absolutely. Is there an injury in rugby league that, and I'm thinking about something like a groin injury or something that sounds pretty basic, but that their recovery for is just horrifyingly bad, that people don't realise how bad it is. Oh, mate, look, like you, you've kind of hit the nail on, like I obviously wanted to educate people on injuries and, and different things and provide information, but a big thing I really try and do is raise awareness on that, um, mm-hmm. that like, you know, sometimes we get caught up in, you know, player gets injured and then player gets announced four to six weeks out, and that's kind of all people really either worry about or talk about. They're like, okay, player got injured, player's out for four to six weeks, I've got to change my fantasy team or whatever. Yeah. Um, but there's so much... Not 
not only does the player go through, you know, especially those ACL injuries and stuff like that, they go through a lot of hard times, you know, both mentally and physically, but then the hard work of the rehab team behind, it's not as simple as, oh, four to six weeks out, he's going to sit on his bed for four to six weeks and let it heal. Um, There's a lot of hard work that goes in behind the scenes. So I try and raise a bit of awareness on that because I think that's really important to shine a light on the hard work that both the players and the rehab staff do. But I'd say the big injury, um, back to your question, sorry to rant, but the the injury that um, is definitely the one is those rib cartilage injuries and and rib injuries. Sort of people hear them and they go, oh, yeah, like, you know, there's no fracture. It's just a rib injury. Mm -hmm. But look, in in our sort of medical circles, that's called the police injury, and it's every breath you take, every move you make. I'm sure... I'm sure there's people out there who listening who've suffered rib injuries, rib cartilage injuries, and seriously, the pain is astronomical, and it's so yeah. hard. You twist over in bed, you breathe, you cough, you sneeze. Like, it is extremely painful. And, and uh, like, you know, sometimes I get people going, oh, how's, like, Paul Gallen and JWH missed, like, three weeks with rib cartilage injuries recently? And I get people messaging me, how are they still out? You know, no fracture, should be fine. And I'm like, seriously, the the pain that they, the, they cause is through the roof. And it makes it so hard to sleep, to move, to breathe. So if you ever hear of a player suffering a rib cartilage injury and they're out for a couple of weeks, know that they're not, you know, they're not sort of, you know, wussing it or anything like that. It is, it is the pain is, is really severe. Well, mate, we've got to let you go because you've actually got to go and treat some people. <laughs> do, so, <yeah. laughs> so look, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on, mate. Thanks for dropping by. And um, you can catch you on Twitter at NRL Physio. Uh, been great having you on, mate. We might see if we can get yeah, you on later you so on, and um, and we'll might ask you some more questions as well later on. Yeah, mate. Look, more than happy to come on, boys. Uh, sorry, I, I do get on get on a bit of a rant train sometimes, so apologies for all the talking. But that's uh, why really we love you, mate. It. All we do is rant. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. You fit Perfect, our mold very well. <laughs> no, good. No, really appreciate it, guys. I'll uh, yeah, I'll chat to you later in the year. All Thank right. you. Thanks, mate. See ya.